Happy Monday, my liberty, kitty cats. And before we get into today's episode, I've got to tell you about another amazing podcast you've got to be listening to. This is brand new, relatively new, I should say. I think it just started this year in January. It is called The Independent Riot. It is hosted by my friend Jim Duncan. And each and every week, he takes deep dives with experts and madmen into all of life's most interesting topics. Uh, I have appeared on the show to discuss the ideas of libertarianism. And Jim has spoken to a host of noteworthy individuals from across the political spectrum, from political reform experts to anti-war activists, tech experts, authors, psychologists, and more. The idea isn't to tell you what's right, but to find what's right through engaging conversations. It's not left. It's not right. It's just real. Check out The Independent Riot wherever you listen to podcasts and check it out on YouTube as well. The Independent Riot, my friends. You're not going to want to miss it. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free of the system. Welcome to the flagship Alliance of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. All right, gang, with me today, uh, he is an actor, he is an economist, a political commentator, a lawyer. This guy has done just about anything you can think of, and I am so, so excited to have the pleasure to speak today with Mr. Ben Stein. Ben, are you ready to roar? I am ready to roar. Excellent, Ben. I, I knew you would be. And uh, we have become acquainted uh, through a mutual friend of ours, Remzo Martinez, who is often a- I love a, Remzo. Yes. I love who, Remzo. who doesn't love Remzo? He's actually a- Everyone loves Remzo. Everyone loves Remzo. That should be the name of his show. Uh, but uh, he has a show called On the Run. You've been on there before, and he is actually my co-host on uh, my other podcast project, the Second Print Comics Podcast. But we are here on Lions of Liberty right now. You know, speaking of it, let's, let's stop for a moment. Sure. I want to get two kinds of old- 50s comic books. Okay. World War II comics, the comics that depict uh, action in World War II. You're going to want Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos. I don't remember what they're called. And then also horror comics, like about vampires and werewolves Okay. Uh, from the uh, 50s. I think we can help you with that for sure. That would be great. We, we could do That'd a whole, maybe Remzo and I will do a whole whole episode of Second Print called uh, Here's Here's Ben Stein's Comics. <laughs> Win Ben Stein's Comics. I, I really, I loved those cartoons when I was a child. Awesome, loved awesome. them. And I have a great many real Lichtensteins, not posters, not posters, not prints, real ones. And of course, they are imitation cartoons. So, Ben, uh, you know, there, there's so many places to start with you, Ben, and I, I'm not sure exactly where to start. So why don't I let you take it away? Uh, where did I know your career? I believe you started out just as a lawyer before you got into all this other stuff. Uh, you ended up working with President Nixon. Of course, people know you from a plethora of movies, uh, maybe most famously Ferris Bueller, but uh, many, 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 many movies you have appeared in. Where did it all start for you? And, and how did, how has life sort of taken you by the horns or maybe you've taken life by the horns, maybe a little combo of both and sort of guided you on this path where you You've just been able to do so much in life. Well, my first job as Judah Friedman, our mutual friend, likes to remind everyone, was as a shoe salesman. And well, first, even before that, I was a uh, did gardening work and car washing for people on my street just to earn a few extra dollars. And uh, it's hard for me to believe I ever did that, but I did. And uh, I pull up weeds and so forth. 
wash cars. And uh, but my first job outside the neighborhood was at a place called the Shoe Giant, which is a shoe store aimed largely at people of color uh, in an area called Langley, uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, which is now almost all black. Uh, maybe if it's possible to be over a hundred percent black, that's what it is. And uh, then uh, I, then my first, then I got a job right after that as a statistician for the civil service commission. These, these are summer jobs. And uh, that was a horrible job because it was an unair conditioned office in Washington, DC during oh. the summer. Oh. And there, everyone in the office smoked and it was awful. Uh, on the other hand, I got paid $63 a week and I felt I was rich. Uh, so then I've had other jobs. I was, a, I was a billing clerk at a very, very powerful law firm called Arnold Fortas and Porter. Really, really powerful. The Fortas in the name was Abe Fortas, who became a Supreme Court justice. The other people were tremendous big wheels in Washington. And then I, uh, my first job out of, and then I was the economist for a year between college and law school because I sort of was drugged horribly incorrectly by the by the uh, student drug student health clinic or whatever it was called at Yale and I got very very sick from a reaction to drugs then I came back there and then I was a lawyer after I got out of law school I was a lawyer and I was also an aide very modest level aide to President Nixon how, how does that happen by the way how, how do you go from you know just a lawyer who's maybe not even that far out of out of law school and you find yourself as as an advisor to the president I believe me, sir. I was not an advisor. I was just a lowly okay. aide co collecting statistical data uh, about uh, the progress that the Nixon administration had made in the uh, civil rights for non-whites. And and we, I worked under a very very nice man named Bob Brown. I hope and pray he's still living. Uh, and I collected statistics about the incredible, unbelievable progress that the Republicans had made in uh, civil rights legislation. Then I, then I, I was also work. I did uh, legal work for poor people who could not afford lawyers under a part of the war on poverty that provided free legal services to very poor people. That was a very, very rewarding job. Uh, really helped people. I really wish I stayed with that for a lot longer. And then I went to be a lawyer for the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, was at the time considered a super prestige job because uh, they had gotten a, a kind of mandate from President Nixon to get the best lawyers in the country or else he was going to close down the whole commission. And so it was a very prestigious thing, but it was horribly difficult. We had essentially no staff. We had to type our own legal documents, which was really difficult. There were no computers in those days. And uh, it was just awful. And uh, it's just awful. And every morning, on Mondays, I, there would be a girl who was in the next office of mine. We did each have our own office. That was nice. And and uh, she would say in a loud voice, so how are you? How was your weekend? <laughs> Every fucking Monday, I would hear that all morning long. Anyway, so uh, then uh, uh, then I, I hated that. I quit that <laughs> uh, being really beaten to shit by the other side. And then I uh, became a teacher part-time at American University in Washington, D.C., uh, which I think was the best job I ever had. It was just wonderful, and nobody in the world has higher regard for American University than I do. Wait, I'm going to talk to my assistant. Go for Jeff, it. Jeff, remind me to send a check to American University. So, and <laughs> they should I be sending a, you a check for promoting them so much on, on the show here. 
They should be, but they're not going to. Uh, so I, uh, I, I taught uh, three semesters. By the final semester, I had the largest class they had ever had at, U at American University, 360 students who literally cheered when I walked in the room, even before I started talking. And boy, did I love that. I'm such a frigging publicity hound, attention hound. It's insane. Did that for a while. Then <clears throat> something happened. I went on a business trip for the Federal Trade Commission out to Santa Cruz, California. Very, very beautiful town. I fell in love with it, and I tried to get a job teaching at the UC, University of California in Santa Cruz. And to my shock, I got one, paid nothing, but a very, very modest, modest stipend. And uh, I taught there for a while, and I loved Santa Cruz, loved California. But uh, my boss uh, and the part of the university that I worked in was a vile anti-Semite and I clashed with him and I said you, you can't send these anti-Semitic texts about me or, or prints about me out to our students uh, or else I'm going to quit and he wouldn't quit he this was kind of interesting because so he was he was very openly anti-Semitic to the point very that, openly racist I, mean, they would call, I would walk around the campus with him when I first got to know him before I realized what a creep he was and he would point out African American students and <clears throat> say what's that n-word doing here Wow. And this was a guy at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And when I when I left there, I got, told my father about it. And my, my father was a prominent person, and a brilliant person, and very prominent. And he contacted Governor Reagan, who was then governor. And as governor, he was head of the Board of Regents of the University of California. And uh, he sent a letter to the head of that campus saying, we've got a problem with this guy. Let's look into it. The campus convened a group of professors to look into this guy and say, oh, it's fine. He's not doing anything wrong. But he was made to resign. And uh, so uh, so there was some progress there. But anyway, um, then I came back to Washington and by an incredible, unbelievable stroke of luck, unbelievable stroke of luck, I got a job as a White House speechwriter for President Nixon. Now, it wasn't entirely luck because I had been writing freelance pieces for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times defending Nixon during Watergate. And there were very few people defending him. So uh, those of us who were defending him did get some airplay. That wouldn't happen nowadays, but it did happen then. And uh, then uh, after Mr. Nixon resigned, I worked for Mr. Ford. Do you mind if we dig a little while. further into that? I I'm kind of curious what prompted you. Like, I, I think Watergate is something that's often glossed over in history. It's kind of just assumed when you learn about it, at least when I learned about it in school, it was very much glossed over as Nixon was a criminal and he had to resign. Yeah, it it's all bullshit. Nixon didn't do anything wrong. It was a total press frame up, media frame up. It, Nixon, it's now been, uh, let's see, the break-in was in 72, that's 28, and then 20, so it's been almost 50 years. Nobody can tell you what Nixon did wrong. And I followed that case very closely. Nobody can tell you what Nixon did wrong. There was a break-in at the Democrat National, Democratic National Committee headquarters. What they were looking for, we still don't know. And... Uh, uh, Nixon didn't know about it. He didn't plan it. Uh, when it turned out that uh, it was done by the committee to reelect the president, which was Nixon's uh, campaign, uh, he summoned some of the top brass from there and asked to be briefed about it. It was briefed about it. He said, this is awful. You guys are going to have to resign. And uh, the burglars, and, and then somebody said, well, the, the burglars actually guys who broke in. 
they know all about it. If, if they can be made to keep silent, the whole thing will blow away, blow over. And Nixon said, uh, well, uh, we could, how much would it cost to pay them to be silent? And, uh, so, and somebody said about a million dollars, which in those days was a lot. And, uh, so, uh, uh, Nixon said, well, we could do it. It would be no problem, meaning it would be no problem to raise that kind of money, but it would be wrong, that's for sure, and he didn't do it. And then at some point, somebody said, that, well, should we get the CIA to call over to the FBI and tell them this is a national security matter and that they should keep hands off? And uh, Nixon, again, said, well, we could do that, but we, 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 we shouldn't do that, so they didn't do it. And that's it. That's he just considered doing these things. He didn't do them. You cannot prove to me that he did anything clearly wrong. He didn't bring a young girl in his office to go down on him under his desk, which President Clinton did. He didn't get us into a war over a phony incident in the Tonkin Gulf, which President Johnson did. Um, he didn't uh, get lead us into World War II by provoking the Japanese while we were completely un, unprepared for it, the way President Roosevelt did. Uh, he, I mean, uh, he didn't bring call girls into the White House like President Kennedy did. I, I just still don't get what he did wrong. Do you believe that Watergate then, from your perspective, was actually meant to set up the president to take a fall for this then? Oh, uh, without question. Mm -hmm. without, without question, it was a setup by someone who made sure that the burglars were caught. And uh, the burglars somehow, uh, I guess they were locksmiths or uh, something like locksmiths, opened a door and then they taped it so it remained open so they could then easily get out. And someone took the tape off. Okay, that, that sounds like a trivial thing. But that's how they got sort of locked in the building. So they were locked in there with enough time for the D.C. police department to come over and arrest them. Somebody did that. Somebody who was following them and knew what they were doing. Was it the FBI? I don't know. But that's what people say. Uh, what were they looking for? We don't know. But anyway, Nixon was made to leave office. This was the greatest peacemaker there's ever been in American history. I'm a Jew. He was the greatest friend the Jewish people have ever had, ever in history. Not just in the history of the United States, not just since there's been an Israel, but ever since there have been Jews. He is the best friend the Jews have ever had. I worship him as a Jew and as an American. And uh, he set up the uh, meetings with the Chinese to so that Russia was encircled. And so that meant we, we won the Cold War. He had a detente with the Soviets so that we had a, a, a stop to the insane pace of nuclear missile development. Uh, he was a, a peacemaker. And uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. No one has ever been a peacemaker like Richard Nixon. And I, as I say, I... I can't even start to say how much I worship the man. Do you believe there to be a correlation between how you see him as a peacemaker, uh, what he was doing with China, Russia, et cetera, and the fact that he was set up to be taken down? Do you, do you think there's any connection there? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my theory, and it's probably worthless, is that the CIA uh, was thoroughly penetrated by Soviet moles. I, I could be totally wrong about that. It might be just a complete myth on my part, but my theory, that's my theory. And this was to some extent uh, 
propounded by uh, I think I think it was Fred Thompson, but I could be wrong, who was the minority counsel on the Watergate Committee and House Watergate Committee, and he said the Soviet moles in the F and the CIA were so mad at Nixon for uh, setting up relations, opening relations with China, and thereby encircling Russia that they made sure they had this conspiracy to get him out of office. And that, to me, sounds very likely. All right, kiddies, I got to take a quick time out here to tell you about one of our great sponsors. And if you don't want to be disappointed with how your life turns out, if you don't want to have any regrets, you might want to look into something a lot of people have been looking into. And that is looking into a life overseas, uh, a second passport, a backup plan, because my friends... Things aren't always rosy here in the States, uh, and the way things are going, especially if you've heard interviews uh, with people like Vin Armani that I've had on the show, things might not be getting a lot better. So a lot of people have been looking into the idea of living and investing abroad, and it never hurts to have a backup plan. In fact, I would call it essential to have a backup plan, and the best way to have a backup plan for living outside the United States is to have the ability to do so, setting yourself up with second passports, with visas, with investments overseas, because we cannot always count on what we think we can count on, my friends. So I encourage you to check out the Expat Money Show, hosted by my friend Mikkel Thorup. Mikkel has lived the expat life and walked the walk. He has been doing this for over 20 years, starting his own businesses, living overseas. Uh, there is no better resource to learn from than Mikkel Thorup. So I want you to go ahead and subscribe to the Expat Money Money Show, wherever you listen to podcasts, there you'll be able to join a great Facebook forum that I actually help moderate where we discuss these ideas. So I want to encourage you to listen, subscribe to the Expat Money Show, and come join us in the forum over at expatmoneyforum.com. So you mentioned, funny you mentioned Fred Thompson there, another uh, lawyer political involved in the political arena that ended up moving on to an yeah. acting acting career. Yes, so, yes, and he's a great guy. So, so how did that happen for you? How did you find yourself after being involved in, in the law, in economics, in politics? How did you then find yourself in Hollywood? Well, my main interest in life is mostly being around pretty girls. <laughs> I have an extremely beautiful wife, just beautiful, just incredibly beautiful. But all my life, I've been interested in being around them. That doesn't mean I have sex with them. They're nice to be around. I mean, we can't we can't argue this. I love to be around. I, I love to be around. You can call me massages all you want. I love to be around <laughs> pretty girls. It means everything to me. So while I was teaching at American University, I was surrounded by beautiful girls. And I loved it a lot. And then when I was at UC Santa Cruz, there were some beautiful girls, not as many, because it was a much smaller school then. Now it's a very large school, but it was very small then. And uh, I, I was sent on business trips many times by the Wall Street Journal. To, to LA and uh, made friends with a number of important people in Hollywood. And uh, wham, there were a hell of a lot of pretty girls around. I thought, wow, I want to be around them. <laughs> and uh, there are lots of them in New York too. But uh, in those days, I had to take the subway to work and it was not air conditioned. It oh. smelled horrible. And there, it was just awful. It was like going to work in a dumpster. So I, when I came out to Hollywood, <clears throat> I was given money to rent a car for by the Wall Street Journal, and I rented a Mercedes convertible. And there I was driving around the palm trees and swimming pools, Mercedes convertible, lots of pretty girls. <laughs> I, I want that life. So this is uh, home, is what, what you. Yeah, were I, to I met a very, 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 very smart. That's well put. Yeah, this is home. I met a very, very smart, very nice guy named Norman Lear. Super successful producer of sitcoms, incredibly successful on a scale that's mind-boggling. 
and uh, he and I became friends, and he offered me a job as a consultant on how conservatives think, because he had a show he was making about a romance between a conservative columnist, sort of like William Buckley, whom you may or may not remember, but he was a very great conservative columnist, and a leftist, I forget, I guess she was a photographer, sort of, he thought of her as being like Jane Fonda. But anyway, so, uh, and they, they had no idea what a conservative would say in certain situations, so they hired me to just talk about that because they had no conservatives on their writing staff. And uh, I came out there and did that. It was the easiest job you can possibly imagine. And uh, I had a lot of fun. The only bad part of it was that when we did the taping, the producers would introduce me to the audience as their resident fascist. <laughs> and uh, I didn't like that. But anyway, I was paid $600 for two hours work a week. Now that. Uh, That's not a bad rate today. So. It was a fucking fortune in those days. I felt like I was a Rockefeller <laughs> and uh, it was great. So uh, that's how I came in. And, and then I started, and then I was writing screenplays like mad, like mad, like insanity, like, like I was a machine and selling them and novels and nonfiction books. And I'm just a hardworking guy because I wanted to, to be busy, get my mind off, off sorrow and loss, and it, and it made money. And making money is a very good thing. As my, I have a very smart brother-in-law. He's a Democrat, but he's still very smart. And he, <laughs> and he says money is the best psychotherapy, and there's something to that. And uh, so, I, so uh, I made friends with a very, 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 very wonderful guy named Steve Green, and he introduced me to a very wonderful guy named Michael Chinich. And Michael Chinich was head of casting and also deputy head of production at Universal. That's a huge job. I mean, you can't quite imagine what a huge job is. It's a huge job. And uh, he put me in a small part in a movie called The Wildlife, which was a sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It was a very small part. And it was not a particularly well-written movie. But then it's probably a reason I haven't heard of it. I'm guessing. Right. Exactly. But then uh, through, through uh, Michael Jennings, I met John Hughes who knew me as a conservative writer. Cause I'd been writing a column for the American spectator for years, a conservative magazine. And also cause I had written a column for the wall street journal for several years, which is a very conservative look at Hollywood, very critical acerbic look at Hollywood. And he asked me to be in a movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I, he asked me to do just one scene where I call the role. I said the name. Atley, Asquith, <laughs> Adler, Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. And a cla the student actually started laughing their heads off. And the, everybody in the cast and the crew laughed. So John said, uh, I'm not going to have you do this off camera as I had planned. I'll have you do a scene on camera taking a role, and I'll have you on camera doing a role, uh, a scene teaching about uh, economics, because he knew I was an economist. And uh, I did that that famous scene about uh, Smoot Hawley Tariff Act. And uh, people were applauding, and uh, uh, Broderick, uh, what's, what's his name? Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, thank you. Came, I just had my, my, my COVID shots, so my brain is sort of fried. But anyway, um, 
he he said, have you ever acted on Broadway? You're a great actor. And I remember, I said, no, I never. This is my first day acting in front of a camera. It actually was my second day, but I'd forgotten about the other one. And I was, I went home on a cloud. I was so happy. I thought, I have really found what my niche is in life. I was happy. Yeah, and then and so then I then I was uh, in. Uh, I, I can't even count how many movies I was in. I was in. I became a wonder, a, a regular on an incredibly fine sitcom called The Wonder Years. Mm-hmm. An incredibly, incredibly fine sitcom called The Wonder Years. And one of my absolute became, favorite shows growing up. It's an incredibly fine sitcom. And then I became a regular on a show called Charles in Charge, which was produced by my best friend at the time, who's now entered immortality, Al Burton. And uh, I can't, I, as I just had every TV show you can think of, and I even played a couple of dramatic roles in, uh, I was in MacIver in a dramatic role, not a comedy role. So, it was absolutely incredible how much I was doing that. And, and I was selling screenplays and I was doing commercials and I was teaching a class at Pepperdine in securities law. Cause I'm very interested in securities law. And uh, I was being an expert witness in securities law cases. I was just a busy guy making money. I like it. All right, kiddies, before we wrap things up here, I got to tell you real quick about our friends at Lorenzotti Italy. Do you like coffee? Do you like premium Italian coffee? Do you like it affordably delivered to your house? Well, guess who does that? Our friends at Lorenzotti Italy. You can find them at lorenzotti.coffee. That's lorenzotti.coffee. I will also link to that in today's show notes. And I really want to encourage you to support these guys because they are not just fine connoisseurs and procurers. Is that a word? Procurers? Procurers? You know what I'm trying to say of fine Italian coffee. But they are also great libertarians, great supporters of this program, patrons of this program uh, for over a year now as well as great entrepreneurs and people who help others. So they also, in addition to getting fine premium coffee delivered to your house, they can also help you set up your own coffee business, whether it's uh, getting equipment, getting financing, trying to set up your own coffee shop. These are the guys to go to. So they really are a one-stop shop for whether you're a coffee lover or whether you're trying to get into that niche as an entrepreneur. So please do check out our friends at Lauren Zotti Italy at laurenzotti.coffee and use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. I want to circle back to something you kind of mentioned earlier, um, how you were just pouring yourself into work, writing screenplays, writing novels, and that to you, this was a kind of therapy. And uh, this is the kind of thing I'm always interested in getting into with people, because I think especially, especially in in a year like this, uh, one thing that's often not addressed out there for people is is that everybody is going through something at some time, and we all need various ways to sort of of take what life is throwing at us, whether it's uh, you know a, a personal tragedy or or just a, a challenge challenging world events like we've all gone through in the past year, and find ways to cope with them, find ways to to sort of channel channel the the, the fear and difficulty and stress into something productive Work. as you did. Yeah. So can you detail a little bit more, like like what that does for you work is an incredibly good way to get your blues away work 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 and in fact even now i'm an old man i'm 76 but i have a lot to worry about and uh i when i wake up in the morning uh the fact that i have work to do is the salvation of my day i will tell you also that i'm in uh a 12-step program i really should be in more than one and uh I have meetings, the meetings, the Bolshevists who run the state have closed down the meetings, but I have a fairly good sized space that I control that I can uh, have small, very small meetings in. And, uh, 
I do, and and they they are life saving, life saving, and uh, so uh, work and the twelve step programs and turning it over to God, and and uh, uh, I I find it's an incredibly wonderful way to go through life. Twelve steps, everyone should do the twelve steps. It's great. When you say everybody, you mean is that something specifically for for alcohol? That's how I often hear it associated with. Or, or yeah, it's usually it, it was founded as Alcoholics Anonymous, but I think it works for every kind of problem in life of every of every description. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Really, really wonderful. One thing that I, I want to address, and I know there's some people out there possibly thinking right now, because you you said something to, in the you know to the effect of you know I wake up, I have problems, I have things in life, and I know there's people listening thinking, what do you mean this guy's got problems? This guy's a, a famous actor, he's well known, he's got probably a few houses. How can this guy have problems? <laughs> that, but, is that a joke? I have a lot of houses. Are you <laughs> kidding? I have a lot of houses. That's a joke. I have a, a lot of houses. A lot. So what what do you say to people that might just might only might think that the only people that have problems in life are people that might have, you know, maybe there are you know, that, that people like you can have problems, can have things you fear, things you stress Everybody about. Everybody has problems. Look, I mean, look, read about the life of Winston Churchill, undoubtedly the greatest man the Western world has produced prior to Nixon. He had terrible problems during the Blitz while London was being bombed and while France was conquered by the Nazis. He was broke. He could not pay his bills. And that's Winston Churchill. I mean, everybody has problems. I've never known a person who didn't have problems. I used to date a Rockefeller, a real Rockefeller, not, not somebody whose real name was Lifshitz who pretended to be a Rockefeller. She was a real Rockefeller, and I dated her. I have to say, she never, ever, as far as I'm concerned, was concerned, had any real affection for me. But she liked the fact that I had drugs, and uh, she, and and even she had problems. I mean, she had more money than I mean, she literally could not possibly count it. And she, and even she had problems. So everybody's got problems. So get out there and work hard, but don't think that your work money hard. is. Don't think the money is going to solve the problems. And, and, well. It helps. A lot of them doesn't solve all of them. Solves a lot of them. It doesn't. It doesn't solve them all, but solves a lot of them. A lot of them, and especially in this town, our glorious LA center of the universe, uh, it solves a lot because one of the big problems in life is finding romance, and women are drawn to money, like uh, cats to catnip, and uh, if they think you have money, you are much more likely to spend quality time with them. That that's. I know that some people are going to write in or, or email in or, and say what a horrible person I am for saying that, but it's true. I mean, it's part of human biology that we it is. we can, we can deny it if we want, but it's there. I mean, uh, biologically speaking, a woman is going to be inclined to find a man who's going to care for her, and you know, money is an indicator of someone that can care for you. So it's a it's a natural inclination that a woman will have, even if they don't like if they don't consciously think that they have that inclination. Well, believe me, the ones that I'm involved with do consciously think about it and ask me for a lot of money on a scale which you I would have considered unimaginable. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's not it's it's not subtle here in LA. It's not subtle. It might be subtle in some places, but in our you're in my glorious LA. It's not subtle. Well, Ben, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you've gotten yourself into here lately. You've uh, kind of come back into the public eye uh, in a sense. You're very active on Parlor, which I believe is back now. You can find Ben on Parlor 
at Ben Stein. You can find you there. And then uh, you also have a, a great podcast. Like I said, our, our friend Remzo has been a, a guest on that many times, as well as, as well as uh, Gary love. Collins, uh, another friend of the show here. And uh, I'm really enjoying the, the the great conversations you guys have on that show uh, about anything. Sometimes it's about politics. Sometimes it has nothing to do with politics. But what what kind of inspired you to, to start doing this stuff, to be out in the public eye more, uh, to start this show? What's behind all of this? Well, it's funny you say what's behind <laughs> it, because you are talking to me in my office, my house, and behind me, about 10 or 12 feet, is my friend Judah Friedman. It's more who, of a who's behind it then. Who created uh, The World According to Ben Stein and does and does everything difficult about it. I just sit here and shoot my mouth off, but he does everything that's difficult about it. And uh, I even get to sing at the end of that, and uh, that, that I really like. And uh, so... Uh, he sort of inspired me, but I, I will tell you, I was also inspired by Mr. Trump because uh, at first I really did not like Mr. Trump. I had, had a run in with him when I was writing about securities fraud for Barron's a long time ago, roughly 1990, very roughly, and uh, very roughly 1990. And uh, uh, and he, I found him to be a bad guy, definitely committing fraud. And uh, when I talked to him on the phone, very uh, unpleasant about it. And uh, But I got to like him as the campaign wound on. I found he was uh, amusing, uh, had good values, and uh, he doesn't uh, do anything, uh, as far as I, I'm concerned, his was a great presidency. And the fact that I was able to get my COVID booster this morning within months after the disease first became rampant, very largely due to him, and nobody's else has ever done that before. That's quite amazing. Right. And he gets no credit. The liberals and the media generally got rid of him in a coup. I mean, he he should have won. I I wasn't counting the ballots. I'm not saying an election was stolen <clears throat> because I'm not allowed to say that. I might get no, I think uh, I think we get immediately banned if anyone suggests anything of, of that. Yeah, nature. I mean. Uh, but uh, he's uh, but uh, he stood for freedom and freedom of speech. We maybe now have a government that doesn't allow freedom of speech. That's kind of sad, uh, extremely sad. And uh, yeah, and I got to really like Trump. I got to really, really admire him. And I think he did a beautiful job on the on the pandemic. And I think he did a beautiful job on the economic effects of the pandemic. Uh, it's astonishing how small the effects have been of a mandatory shutdown of a large sector of the economy. It's still larger than we would like it to be, but it's nothing compared with what I expected it to be or what people thought it was going to be. They thought we all, I mean, everybody thought it was going to be another great depression. It's turned out to be less than your average recession. And that's thanks to Trump. Just from your economic perspective, real quick, do, do you do you see this as something that we can quickly recover from, or do you think that the effects haven't even really been felt yet with so many businesses that might have been being held up by PPP loans or held up by you know just just hanging on by a thread that that are actually going to end up you know crashing once they realize they can't really keep these things together if it keeps going on much longer? It's impossible to predict the future of the economy. Many have tried. Nobody's done it successfully, and I can't do it either. What I can tell you is that the amount of money that the government is borrowing to throw around is very, to, by any historical measurement or any theoretical measurement, extremely dangerous and worrisome. And what I also worry about is that the, this, uh, the president is using the uh, recovery from the pandemic to uh, bribe African-Americans to be to vote Democratic forever. And uh, 
I, I was very, very upset to see that uh, one of his one of the parts of his recovery program is specifically aimed at blacks. I think it would be unheard of if he said, I have another part that's specifically aimed at whites. That would be unheard of and, and people would go crazy. And I think for the for the pandemic to be addressed on racial terms, to get another step who's making us a racialist society like South Africa was before the end of apartheid. I think that the ultimate goal of the uh, Democrat Party is to make this a racialist society, and I don't like it at all. Ben, uh, I, I know you had your, like you said, your second COVID booster today, so I want to get you off here pretty soon. Uh, one thing I want to just leave you with, uh, first of all, I want to encourage everybody out there to check out The World According to Ben Stein. You can find it on YouTube. Please watch it. It's very amusing. It'll be on tomorrow. Yes. Thursday and I think Saturday falls well, uh, unless I've died from the booster. Oh, of come this on, that's not going to happen. Thing. I mean, I, I am feeling very lightheaded. <laughs> well, hopefully, we don't have the last exclusive appearance of Ben Stein here on Lines of Liberty, but I really do appreciate your time. Again, check out The World According to Ben Stein. You can find it's it. Really, it's a really funny show. It's it extremely is. funny. If I may it's say this, it's the only funny show about economics on TV and the only funny show about politics. We, I used to do a show with Neil Cavuto, Cavuto on business on Fox. That, that was a funny show about economics. And we, all the people actually knew anything about economics have been banished. And I don't know, I don't know what they're doing now, but God bless them. Ben, I really appreciate uh, your time. Again, check out The World According to Ben Stein. It's on YouTube. They go live. It's on there afterwards. You can also find it wherever uh, podcasts are found. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find The World According to Ben Stein. Uh, one more thing, Ben, before you go. I just want you to uh, take a second to give any any final uh, words of wisdom you have out there uh, for people listening right now, people that might find your life just a little bit interesting and want to uh, you know get a little bit of that Ben Stein wisdom before we depart the, uh, depart the episode here. Yeah, I will give you a lot of it, which is that this pandemic has hit my uh, career, such as it was, and it's very, very hard. And yet I live in uh, very great comfort because at a fairly early age, I started saving and investing prudently and carefully. Uh, and uh, I recommend to everyone of any age, start saving right away. That is darn good advice as someone who I, I don't, there's probably no one out there who doesn't wish they started saving and investing and getting seri about, serious about that earlier in life. So I think no matter what age you are listening, even if you're 10 years old, you can probably start saving now. So Absolutely. Right. The earlier, the better. Ben Stein, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with, to with God you. God bless you, sir. Keep up the God great work. You. Keep on roaring, Ben. God bless you, sir. Roar, lion, roar. God bless you, sir. <laughs> All right, kitty cats, I really hope you enjoyed my discussion with the great Ben Stein. Yes, I am going to use that term great to describe this man because he has just done so much in life and uh, is truly, truly a wonderful person, if I do say so myself. And I've really had the pleasure to get to know Ben a little bit over the last few weeks. Got to appear on his show, The World According to Ben Stein. I will link to that in the show notes. And uh, I am in before, in before, but he said this, but he said that, my friends, this interview is not meant to be a libertarian purity test of any kind. Ben Stein is not a libertarian, does not claim to be a libertarian. There are certainly many uh, sideways rants and rabbit holes I could have down gone down with him on many different issues, but at the end of the day, he's on the show to tell me about his life, for me to gain insights from him. Now, in terms of him gaining insights into libertarian ideas, well, that's what I did, or at least attempted to do, when I went on his program, The World According to Ben Stein. So, uh, I treated him as a guest in my home, he treated me like a guest in his home, and have really 
really had the pleasure of getting to know Ben. So I do want you to check out his show, The World According to Ben Stein. Uh, it really is fun. Uh, I appear on there often. Remzo appears on there. Our friend Gary Collins, friend of the show, has appeared on there as well. So definitely want to check that out. He's doing his job to, even though he's not a libertarian, to bring in libertarians into his fold. And I think that's where we need to be. We need to be in the culture. We need to be where people are. And, and Ben Stein, especially when I was growing up, I mean, this guy is a cultural icon. He certainly was for me. I grew up with him as Kevin's teacher on The Wonder Years. Of course, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a role he is best known for, a movie I grew up watching as well. So just a pleasure to be able to meet and get to know Ben Stein. I hope you enjoyed that as well. Uh, that's about all I've got for this week. Don't forget, it's not just me here every Monday. We've got Brian slapping you upside the head with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, mispronunciations galore, and of course, a little bit of liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt will wrap things up on Thursdays with Finding Freedom. So don't forget to check them all out. Hit that subscribe button. Smash the heck out of it. And if you want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Liberty. Patrons of the show got to listen to this interview uh, early, about two weeks ago. They got to hear this one. I've been sitting this one on the back burner for a little bit. So if you, too, want to get early access to interviews like this interview with Ben Stein, again, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can also get access to all of our exclusive bonus content, shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, although it's on a little bit of a hiatus, along with all sorts of bonus live streams. Our patrons got to see the Dave Smith, Dave Rubin, Eric Brakey conversation live uh, before it was released to the public last week on Electric Liberty Land. So just so many reasons to support the Pride for as little as $5 a month you can support the show help us grow this thing help us break through into the culture which is our mission this year that's all I got for this week my friends until next time live long and live free